electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Julia Borston. Today, three big calls on Amazon, uh, top 20, uh, 22 pick, and they all have a different catalyst, plus a price hike for Apple and the bear case for Robinhood. Then Meta, Twitter, Pinterest, and Amazon are the latest to pull out of CES, how tech companies are approaching travel and the workplace amid rising COVID cases. And as Musk and Dorsey continue to sound off on the metaverse, we're going to dive into how investors might play some of the new ad opportunities there, John. Well, but we'll start with that trio of bullish calls on Amazon and all the different markets in which the company plays. Boy, how do they love Amazon? Let us count the ways. Oppenheimer viewing it as a cloud play. They favor Amazon over Microsoft, saying AWS is less stretched from a valuation perspective and riding the momentum from its reInvent conference. UBS looking at the retail side of things. Analysts write that despite other e-commerce players grabbing market share, they believe growth could re-accelerate to 20% in 2023. They call the stock a top pick right now, as does Dana Telsey, who says uh, consumer technology companies are likely to take a premium spot in the post-COVID-19 world. We should point out basically every analyst who covers the company has a buy, not a single sell on the street and just a couple of fringe holds, Julia. To me, I don't know. If, if I were an investor in individual stocks, which, of course, as a, a CNBC journalist, I am not, that might make me a little uncomfortable that there's so much bullishness. It's, you know, when, when there's a market and there's too many buyers and not enough sellers, I don't know. Yeah, everyone jumping on that bandwagon. One thing I thought was so interesting reading all these different notes is there are so many different places that Amazon has strength, so many different markets where Amazon is dominant, whether you're looking at e-commerce or the strength of AWS. And Carl, I wonder, is is no one talking about antitrust risk to Amazon anymore? You know, there was a period where when we were talking about antitrust risk to big tech, you know, Jeff Bezos and Amazon, they were right up there in that conversation. And now it seems like people have moved on. Yeah, it's true. A lot of the headlines, at least today, guys, are on more uh, quotidian concerns, uh, re- uh, reinstating their mask mandate at warehouses. And, of course, we've been watching this uh, outage of AWS on the East Coast. But the bigger existential questions about Amazon growth, guys, clearly not in the discussion right now. We want to continue with stocks at large. Uh, Credit Suisse has this kind of existential note asking what ex- what is a tech stock these days. They point out that nearly a quarter of the NDX is now a non-tech-related name. They talk about how the S&P is defining tech right now. Uh, Credit Suisse Chief Equity Strategist and Head of Quantitative Research Jonathan Golub joins us this morning. Jonathan, interesting piece, uh, and I do wonder uh, what you think it means. What, what are the big questions that you're asking right now? Well, you know, first of all, we're really bullish on, on the stock market overall, 
and tech shares in general, in general, are not the biggest beneficiaries of all this inflation. But depend when, when people say tech is doing well or not doing well, it all depends on how they define it. And there's no one definition. So if you look at small cap, you know, a smaller cap tech, it's actually really cheap. And the earnings growth rates are expected to be much, much faster. Um, but, you know, but they've lagged meaningfully over the last 12 months, especially compared to what we're calling gamma, you know, the, those big five tech names, Google, Google, Amazon, you know, and, and the like. And, um, and if you look at the more you know, broadly defined tech sector, you get a very different read. But mega cap tech is doing one thing. The average tech company is actually has been more beaten up, cheap, um, and there, there might be some really good opportunities over the near term. So are we, I mean, I guess, at least on the S&P side, are, is, it, is it a matter of semantics, meaning communication services versus technology, or is there, is there a more material question there? Well, you know, I think that what, what the folks at S&P have, have done with their, 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 their mix is 40% of the, of the S&P right now is basically tech. And so by putting Amazon as a discretionary name and by putting, um, you know, Google and Facebook as communication services names, um, to a certain extent, what they're really trying to do is kind of break up the tech sector. But here's the thing. If you're a tech investor, you look at this as one big pool. You want to look at it together. That's you know why we created this concept of Tech Plus, which is their official definition, and then adding all that other stuff that they've scattered about. But 40% of the S&P is technology. It's the dominant driving force um, for the overall S&P returns that you're going to get you know, over the next uh, several years. And the S&P is just trying to stop one sector from being so overwhelmingly large. And, and it just makes it a little more difficult for tech investors to have like a single benchmark or way of looking at it. Jonathan, this whole thing gets to one of my pet peeves. And yes, viewers, I apologize. There are many uh, about this idea that every company is a tech company. Every company is not a tech company. I'm not sure how you would define it, but in, in my sense of it is, does the company have unique IP uh, technology-wise that gives customers a unique advantage? Um, you know, versus do they hire a bunch of software developers and do they use technology to run their business? Yeah, you know, people can hire, I don't know, uh, a whole bunch of custodial staff, but that doesn't make them a cleaning company. They can own a lot of buildings. That doesn't make them a real estate company. I mean, every company is not a tech company, right? Elon, but first of all, let, let's just start with the easy one. Tesla, it, you know, we don't think is a tech company. I mean, when we talk about tech, we're talking about digital technology, not innovative. I mean, they're an innovative company, but they're not a technology company. And more importantly, I mean, you have every single bank right now is saying that they're a, techno a technology company. Every industrial firm is saying, look what we're doing with big data. And that's great. They're users of technology. It's going to make them more efficient. That's why the tech companies are doing so well, because everyone's adopting it. But no, they, they, you know, they're, they're tech companies and they're not tech companies. And for the most part, these lines are, are really clear on, on, on the differences between the two. Well, you know, ultimately, the question is, what do you sell to your customers? If you're selling a micro, microchip, if you're selling a PC or, or, a, you know, or, or a, um, you know, a cell phone or, your, or a software code, you're a tech company. If you're selling you know, auto parts and you happen to use technology in what you do, you're an auto parts company. 
Yeah, we're seeing all the tech companies fuel every other sector as they increasingly rely on technology, even though they may not be tech companies themselves. Jonathan, as you look at these different sectors within tech, I'm wondering if you think they will really move in tandem next year or if you think we'll see a lot of divergence within these different categories, sort of the haves and have nots in each of these categories. No, I think they're going to I think they're going to differ a lot. I mean, the, the big question um, is how strong do you think the economy and inflation are going to be? If the economy is stronger, it's going to help the parts of the tech sector that look more kind of old economy, right? So those that are in semiconductors and hardware and equipment do better in a world where there's more inflation and, um, and stronger economic growth. GDP is in, in novel terms, including inflation, is supposed to be over 7% year next year. That's consensus. And if that's the case, then areas like software, which are great long-term plays, they just don't get the leverage from that kind of upside. So I do think that you're going to see really big differences. I think perhaps the biggest difference we're going to see, we just have a note that was just published uh, literally 15 minutes ago. We squeezed it in so we could talk about it on this call, was we looked at the average (laughs) tech company, which is a much smaller company, versus these mega cap names. And a huge, huge difference. Those these smaller companies look really poised to do very well over the next 12 months. Longer term, the big names, stronger ROE, stronger sales growth, they look great. But over the next 12 months in a good economy, these smaller names should do really well. Hey, finally, Jonathan, you know, uh, one thing you've been good about is uh, watching S&P earnings for next year. There's a creeping conversation that the street is is not keeping pace with what EPS may do. Uh, do you think uh, consensus is catching up? Do they need to catch up for next year? Oh, the, the consent, the, the analyst estimates are, are, are too are too low. There's, there's not a question. And we think that they're probably too low by four or five percent. Um, first of all, if we assuming that we don't go forward with this bill back America and we don't get the higher uh, taxes on that, that's a benefit. But ultimately, when you have really, really strong um, economies like we have right now, analysts just tend to not fully um, put those numbers in their their estimates. I mean, this year, um, the you know the average beat was something like you know almost twenty percent. I mean, the average beat normally is four percent, and we think that it's not going to be the same next year. But the general pattern is going to be the same. So you know, for for quants. Earnings revisions are going to continue to be really strong. Earnings surprise is going to be really strong. And for a general investor, all that means is that the numbers are too low and they're going to go higher. Uh, We'll be talking about that, of course, all through Q1, I have no doubt. Uh, Jonathan, great note. Uh, Great couple of notes. Uh, Thanks for sharing. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Have a great holiday. Turning now to rising COVID cases, companies continuing to make changes surrounding in-person events. Amazon, Meta, Twitter and Pinterest are the latest to say they will not be attending CES in Las Vegas in early January over Omicron concerns. Separately, Intel saying it will put any unvaccinated employees on unpaid leave. Plus, a story just crossing on CNBC.com saying all of Amazon's warehouse employees in the U.S. will once again be required to wear face masks at work amid the recent surge in cases. 
And as many workers remain remote, we also have a new piece on CNBC.com and how Google employees have become frustrated about the company culture. CEO Sundar Pichai held an all-hands meeting where he acknowledged that Google faces challenges in communicating with its growing workforce and that the pandemic has made things even harder. John, I have to wonder, you know, is there something specific going on at Google right now? Or is this just a really tough time, especially for large companies, to communicate with their employees and maintain any sort of culture? I think it's a really tough time, Julia. I I hear not just from large companies, but from small companies, uh, the challenges of maintaining a culture if you're larger, building a culture if you're smaller. And a lot of these smaller companies have either doubled their workforce or more than doubled it over the past two years. If you're a small, fast-growing startup, by definition, you know, at this point, probably more than half of your workforce has never met a majority of other people in person. So I think there's that. There's also the shifting rules, right? You get, uh, you know, the Biden administration saying you've got to have everybody vaxxed, you know, court striking that down and then upholding it. So there's a bit of whiplash there. And then, Carl, I think there's the issue of consequences. There are companies that held off on having vaccine mandates or even really strong incentives. And some of them, I think, started to bring people back in office, in, in, uh, into the office. And then Omicron hits, right? And then you've got the, the issue of, oh, my goodness, well, what if I've got people who are in the office who have different status, and how many tests do I have to do? Is it worth all of that hassle and the consternation from employees who have been vaccinated? And so they're dealing with it. Yeah, there's been some uh, some pretty good worker sentiment data published this week, Julia, and that finds generally that people are it's not that they're burned out from the amount of work uh, itself. It's more about the separation that you have in that relationship between uh, you and your superior, you and your peers. Uh, It's just sort of an unfortunately collateral damage in this period we're in. Yeah, we think about all of those meetings, brainstorming sessions that aren't quite as good when you're not in person, mentorship, all those things that are lost and the goalposts keep changing. Meanwhile, still to come, how to play the ad opportunities in the metaverse, how companies are continuing the push into virtual worlds. Tech Check is just getting started. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Let's get a gut check on Apple. City raising its price target from 170 a share to 200, which is well above, I would note, that $3 trillion market cap level around 182, 183. Reiterating its buy rating, shares are higher this morning, fractionally. City uh, making that upgrade, looking ahead to a potential Apple car 
and Apple VR headset. Also expecting Apple to keep growing on the top line, Julia. Speaking of Apple's expected VR headset, that's one of a number of key milestones that are expected next year that could continue to push businesses and consumers into the metaverse. So first, in addition to Apple, Meta is expected to launch a new headset. It's codenamed Cambria, and it's a higher-end device that mixes virtual elements with the real world. Niantic, that's the company behind hit augmented reality game Pokemon Go, it has teased augmented reality glasses that it has in the works. And then second, interoperability. That's your ability to bring your avatar and virtual goods from one platform to another. Now, Ready Player Me, it already allows you to create an avatar. I made one that works in multiple games, and we do expect more companies to follow. Third, we should expect a lot more augmented reality without special hardware. Startups 8i and 8th Wall developed live hologram video calls. They can be accessed on any web browser on your computer or on your phone. And this technology called volumetric video, it uses 30 cameras to capture a person in three-dimensional space. So I spoke to a hologram of 8i's CEO through my phone. It really felt like he was in the room with me. What does it have to do with the metaverse? Authenticity. It's a one word, authenticity. The question we have is, is the metaverse going to be fake people or is it going to be real people? We think it'll be real people. We think volumetric video is the solution to authenticity in the metaverse. It was a nice alternative to talking to an avatar. So that technology is increasingly going to be used for watching concerts and other live events. You'd be watching them at home on your phone or through your computer. Now, the more technology there is like that for AR and VR, the more we are going to see mainstream brands like Nike, Gucci, and Burberry continue to invest in a presence in the virtual world and also selling virtual goods, Carl. Interesting. Uh, and uh, to your point about uh, hardware, Julia, it's going to be curious to see whether or not this is driven primarily by sort of leisure, consumer, entertainment, music, that kind of thing. Or, John, uh, enterprise, which I think gets a little bit buried in, in terms of how corporates are going to use this to onboard new employees. Microsoft's a great example of that. Yeah, I wonder, is there a this here? I mean, you've got uh, Microsoft with HoloLens type, type technology and the DoD deal with really expensive equipment that's for the battlefield. Um, you've got the more consumer stuff. I don't know. You've got like straight hair avatar Julia Borston and you've got curly hair avatar Julia <laughs> Borston. Can they exist in the same space, Julia? <laughs> the question is just, can I have that same avatar exist in all of these spaces? But got sometimes straight, sometimes curly, John. Now let's stay on the metaverse. Uh, and for more on how companies plan to monetize these opportunities, let's bring in Needham's Bernie McTiernan. Bernie, thanks so much for joining us. You cover Roblox. And this is a company that for so many years, people thought of as a game company. But in reality, we're realizing it's more of a metaverse company. What do you anticipate in the next year in terms of other companies trying to make money on this platform? Yeah, no, it's a it's a great point. And the metaverse is certainly ripe. Um, given the engagement, we always think monetization will follow. I mean, that goes back to the famous Mary Meeker charts dealing with, you know, Internet usage and advertising dollars following as well, too. Um, some of the other plays that um, I think in our coverage that, 
are trying to monetize. One is Shutterstock. Shutterstock is actually the best performing group of our coverage this year. Um, but in that Mark Zuckerberg video where he's playing uh, cards, one of those um, one of those avatars is actually made by Shutterstock's Turbo Squid. So we think that's kind of a stealth metaverse play. And then Iron Source as well, um, as advertising comes to the to the metaverse, there's going to be mediation strategies. There's going to be user acquisition strategies. That certainly, I think, all those kinds of companies are going to be playing in. So talk to me about advertising coming to the metaverse. When I was in Decentraland, they were selling land, but they were also selling billboards. And in a couple of these different virtual worlds, it seems pretty easy to buy ad space. I mean, a virtual billboard is obviously different than a a targeted web ad. But I'm wondering if you think that ad dollars are actually going to move into these worlds. Right now, Facebook doesn't have any ad opportunities in its, I'm sorry, Meta doesn't have any opportunities uh, in its virtual platforms to advertise. Yeah, no, we, we think they will. Um, and so right now, you mentioned it on the, on the onset, but there's all these brands are evaluating a metaverse strategy. And the key takeaway for us from, or one of the key takeaways from the Roblox Investor Day a few weeks ago was their VP of Global Brands Partnership saying that every company is going to have a, Rob, uh, have a Roblox strategy in three to five years. And we certainly think if engagement and DAUs track the way they think they, we, they will, um, we think that's going to be happening. So you're already seeing examples of this, whether it's Gucci Gardens, Nike Land. Um, and so those are, you know, that will be shifting the advertising opportunity within Roblox where games are just focused on how many Roblox can they acquire. That's a, you know, 2.7 billion this year. We expect Roblox on the platform to all of a sudden you're using Roblox and other metaverse platforms to see how many handbags, how many sneakers, how many HBO Max subscriptions you can sell. And all of a sudden that opens up the metaverse to the, to the broader digital advertising dollars where, where brands are deciding between should they put a dollar on Facebook or a dollar on Roblox? Uh, Bernie, let's play a little caveat investor, though. I remember 15 years ago editing magazine pieces about companies that were offering uh, ad inventory, buying and selling ads inside of console and PC games. There was an attempt at this back then. Didn't really catch on. I also remember game consoles trying to pitch themselves as the living room hub more than just about games. They were supposed to be your streaming central, etc., All of them have pulled back from that to be mainly about games because, hey, there's a lot of money in games. I don't see myself as a grown-up going into Roblox to do anything. So what are the, the chances that this doesn't play out exactly as some of the optimists have sketched out? Yeah, John, it's interesting you mentioned that. So we launched on Roblox and we did two two surveys. One of them focused on 18 to 24-year-olds because really the key for Roblox is continuing to age up. Um, the, the users on the platform, the majority of which were under 13 a few years ago, are now over 13, is the about 50-50 between usage and DAUs. So we wanted to ask 18 to 24-year-olds about their, about their usage on Roblox. And the most interesting thing that we found is that social is what matters and what drives these platforms. Um, And if you look at consumer spending, as you move from eight to 12 year olds to 13 to 18 year olds, your screen time usage goes up about two hours or two and a half hours. And right now, social networks takes about half of that. Um, So that's really the opportunity here for Roblox and other metaverse platforms is to, as the social aspect improves, like voice becomes a bigger part of the Roblox platform and other investments that they're making to improve the platform, um, is that they can take some of that, that share and time spent. And therefore, we think that leads to modernization opportunities down the road. Hey, finally, Bernie, on, on a, from an ROI standpoint, um, are the metrics 
Do they require any massaging as we move into this new platform, or you simply migrate over the business pitch that you would be giving for any kind of digital media, for example? Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that we did in our report was trying to frame what Roblox, what, you know, the metaverse platforms could actually be. Um, you guys mentioned the enterprise opportunity before. Um, you know, that seems like a, it would be um, <laughs> maybe a step too far for Roblox to get to at this point. But so we, we really focused on kind of some large TAMs that right now, um, that's consumer spending on media and entertainment globally. That's apparel spending globally and digital advertising. That's $3.2 trillion of consumer spending and advertising. Um, you know, your guess is as good as mine in terms of how much of that can actually flow to the metaverse. But even, you know, a small percentage, and I know that's a dangerous game to play by saying if they just get 1%, but, you know, if you put a 15, 30 or 50% take rate for the platform, you're talking about tens of billions of dollars of opportunity for the platform. Um, and so that's, you know, that's why the, the pie is so big. That's why you're seeing all the largest companies in the world going after this opportunity, because if it is fulfilling, it, there, there's a massive opportunity here. Bernie, thanks so much for joining us with that insight. Uh, happy holidays to you. And we hope we can continue to talk about these topics next year. Absolutely. Have a great New Year's. After the break, Triller announcing plans to go public through a merger with Sea Change International. Stock is surging this morning. The CEO of Triller is with us next. Don't go away. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Julia Borston. Tesla is the biggest gainer on the NDX this morning, up 70 bucks, back above 1,000. It's about a two-week high, uh, submitting approval for a new plant in Germany while also being investigated for allowing drivers to play video games while behind the wheel. Stock might be moving more on Musk's comments, though, about his own share sales, which he says have now been enough. More on that in a moment. Let's get a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hey, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. Consumer confidence rising to a five-month high despite rising inflation. Consumers' view of current conditions fell slightly, but their outlook for the next six months improved. Third quarter economic growth was stronger than previously thought. GDP growth increased to 2.3 percent. That is still the slowest pace in five quarters, but this year's economic growth is on track to be the strongest since 1984. Existing home sales rose nearly 2% in November. That is less than economists had forecast. 
Median home prices continue to surge, but the annual growth rate has dropped below 14 percent. That's down from 20 percent increases seen earlier this year. And CarMax quarterly results blowing past estimates, although the company's stock is down more than 4 percent. The company also saying that last quarter's strength is continuing into the end of the year. And even with today's drop, shares of CarMax are still up nearly 40 percent this year. You're now up to date. John, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you. And now two more pieces of news today. One, we learned that video platform TikTok has pushed Google aside to become the most popular website in the world, at least according to new data from Cloudflare's latest Internet traffic rankings. Second, somewhat related, somewhat not, Triller, another short-form video app, announced this morning that it is going public, not via SPAC, but a reverse merger with an existing publicly traded company, SeaChange International, that deal, well, we'll see how much it really values Triller at. Joining us now is Triller CEO, Mahi Da Silva. Mahi, welcome. Hi, thank you. Pleasure to be here. So let's level set here because there's been some controversy over exactly how many users Triller reaches and uh, exactly what its relationship uh, has been with, for example, uh, music publishers. So starting with the users, how are you measuring uh, user reach and user engagement from here? Yeah, user engagement for us is how we help creators uh, publish content, you know, on our apps, uh, on our web experience, but also on every platform um, that they publish content on, including platforms like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, Twitter and, and, and others. Right. But how many so users, engagement for us is how many users does Triller have? So in, in terms of uh, monthly reach, um, we've, we've talked about in the press release, we touched north of 750 million um, users on a global basis. And then are you counting, therefore, people who see content that was created uh, via Triller creators, but not necessarily engaging with Triller's platform. I'm trying to understand how you measure users and therefore the uh, value of the platform itself versus just where content is being seen. Yeah, so keep in mind that our job is to help creators get their content to users everywhere. So that might end up um, starting on our platform with our creator tools but getting published to a platform like, let's say, TikTok or Instagram. But when creators create a click-out experience, right, they might use those platforms to get that initial visibility, but they want to click out into something that's more than just that clip or that post. And we instrument all of that. We measure it. We help uh, bridge that journey from short-form content to long-form content which is typically posted on our platform. So that's what the content journey looks like. And when we talk about, um, you know, 750 million engagements, we're talking about all of that um, uh, technology that we deliver to creators to drive user engagement that ultimately gives them the, an opportunity to monetize that, that content experience. 
But, Mahi, you know, John just mentioned these concerns about the reliability of your metrics. There's also been a lot of concern about your relationship with the music labels, because so much of what Triller is about is having access to music. And Universal Music Group pulled its catalog off the app in February, saying that Triller has withheld payments. That is one of a number of negative headlines about your relationship with the labels. How do you address those concerns (laughs) for investors? I think you should look at, you know, the 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 ensuing press releases that came out of Universal Music Group. We have a great relationship with them. Their content is on our platform. Um, There's always, you know, licensing schisms that happen with license holders. And that's just a dance that content companies, uh, you know, play with platforms like us. And that's just a reality of doing business with them. But we, we have a great relationship with them. Their artists get featured in our events, on our platform, um, and, and they're all very happy to, to be part of our ecosystem. Ma, I'm curious to know more about um, some acquisitions you've made that, that specialize in, uh, in B2B events. Uh, a lot of what we're talking about seems very consumer-related, but what kind of use case might we be talking about? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, at Triller, we, we host about a dozen flagpole events, right, whether they're music with our versus platform or combat sports related with Troller Fight Club or Triad. But our B2B platform, which is powered by the Fight app, F-I-T-E, hosts about 1,100 events a year. Uh, And that's all about getting creators and content owners an opportunity and a platform to get that content out to consumers everywhere, whether it's a ad-sponsored experience, a pay-per-view experience, or even a subscription experience. So our B2B business is, is one of the fastest growing parts of our business and true to our mission for helping creators get their content out to everyone and help them monetize that content. And then perhaps finally, Mahi, if I understand this correctly, and Triller is most strategically about attracting and retaining sort of high volume, uh, high engagement content creators. Should we expect to have metrics on how many of those creators you are attracting and retaining, uh, what the churn is among that group uh, and what the sort of dollar value of those relationships is? Yeah, absolutely, we'll, we'll, we'll be talking about that. Uh, but keep in mind that you know, what, what our, uh, our platform attracts are the who's who of creators, influencers, tastemakers across the spectrum. You know, they might be music artists, they might be movie stars, athletes, public figures. Um, and our job is to help them engage audiences all over the world. Um, and, and if you just look at, uh, you know, the, the collection of those, uh, those creators, um, they have billions of followers all over the um, the content ecosystem, but many of them are basically locked up in wall garden jail. And our job, our platform, is to free those users so that the content creators have more co- more control and and more agency around that relationship between themselves, their content, and their followers and friends. Okay. Well, Mahi, looking forward to seeing uh, more data on how that's gone and how that's going uh, uh, as we look at this milestone for you today. Mahi De Silva, the CEO of Triller. Thank you. Thank you.
Still to come, the bear case for Robinhood. Why B of A says the perfect storm is over. That's after a quick break. Let's get a gut check on the IPO market. 397 IPOs have priced this year, up almost uh, 81%. Uh, since uh, this time a year ago, hitting the highest level since 99 and 2000. Wonder what happened in those years. Uh, yet, despite the records, 64% of this year's listings are trading below, of course, uh, the IPO price. Robinhood, Bumble, Didi, NerdWallet are just a few names that have fallen below the IPO price. And BuzzFeed's down 40% since going public via SPAC earlier this month. Stock's still trading below $6 a share. We're going to have a lot more on Robinhood in just a moment when Tech Check continues. Take a look at Robinhood. Our next guest is a bear, initiates coverage with an underperform price target 22, uh, worried about a number of factors, actually. Joining us this morning is the analyst behind the call, B of A's Craig Siegenthaler, has been named the top analyst by Institutional Investor for the last three years running. Craig, it's great to have you. Appreciate the time. Uh, your note goes through a bunch of various risks, uh, regulatory risk, payment for order flow, market shares already high, um, COVID tailwinds reversing. It makes you wonder what could go right at this point. Yeah. Carl, I think you're right. I mean, well, this company, first, you have to give them credit. They went from zero accounts in 2015 to 23 million accounts now. That's 10 times the size of interactive brokers, and it's gaining on Schwab, although their, their account sizes are small. But through those growing pains, which includes uh, adding cryptocurrencies, which is tough. They're a pioneer there. They've also had some issues with disclosure around payment for order flow. And payment for order flow is the big one. This is what the SEC is looking at right now, and that's 70 to 80 percent of their revenues every quarter. Yeah, we talked about that. Well, we talked about that when the stock was 65, I guess. Is there any reason to think that the regulatory picture has worsened? And have they done anything to increase the moat relative to uh, the Schwabs of the world who clearly aren't standing still? Yeah, no, you're right. So, you know, Robinhood was the pioneer of uh, zero commissions on equities. That was their major selling point um, with, with the model. And everybody copied them. Everybody adopted this now. And so when you look at their capabilities and you look at Schwab, you look at interactive brokers and some of their competitors, the competitors offer more things now. But Robinhood's market's very different. Their target market is really 20 to 34-year-olds in the United States. Um, it's individuals that are first-time investors. They have smaller account sizes, around 4,000, 4, so it's different. And they're a stock trading app first, a mobile app application, but they've also added cryptocurrency trading, which they offer, also offer for free. They're trying to improve their cryptocurrency offerings right now. They're trying to offer more coins and digital wallets. This could actually help accelerate growth. But, Carl, 
we actually have a lot of growth built into our model, although there's no way it can look like what it looked like the last five years, which we kind of call the perfect storm. And they benefited from the Department of Labor rule from the COVID pandemic tailwinds, which are now starting to reverse. Hey, Craig. Uh, good morning. It's John. So the, the guy who started Shopify was originally trying to start a snowboard shop, and that was going well until it stopped snowing. So I wonder, when it comes to Robinhood, what happens if it stops snowing? Mainly, will yeah. its customer base remain loyal if the markets stop going up, up and away, if margin trading and options trading is not as available? How are we going to know? So, I mean, listen, it, a lot of this depends on what the SEC decides with both brokers offering crypto um, and also they're investigating payment for order flow now, market structure. Um, adverse scenarios with both of those would be very bad for Robinhood. It's not what we're baking into our estimates or our target price. It was actually above the stock today, but they could have very adverse uh, scenarios for the firm. Also, though, to your point, trading volatility um, and trading activity and retail engagement, it's going down. People are going back to work. The stock market's more stable and choppy. It's not going straight up anymore. And so we also think engagement will be slower. So what you're probably going to see here is very good growth, although slower than it's been. Um, average account sizes are also going to expand as their client gets a little wealthier. But what also is going to happen is trading activity is going to keep normalizing down, which is their major profit driver. Payment for order flow, which is really trading volume, is again 70 to 80 percent of their revenues. So, Craig, certainly Robinhood has particular risk around those regulatory issues for payment for order flow and also for cryptocurrency. But that is something that is going to impact Robinhood's rivals as well. Position Robinhood in this broader universe. Who do you think might be better positioned even considering some of these headwinds? Yeah. So when you look at the actual stocks for a second and and, then stop talking the business, but the actual stocks, um, we think the Fed is going to raise rates a bunch of times in the next two years, maybe four rate hikes over uh, 12 to 18 months. Um, or In that scenario where you get more or less than that, but the Fed's still raising rates and inflation's high, I want to be outperformed by or long uh, the retail brokers that have a lot of interest rate sensitivity. And that's Charles Schwab and more so with interactive brokers. Those two are more exposed to rates. Uh, Robinhood is almost purely exposed to trading activity, which we think is normalizing down. So from the earnings revision stock perspective, um, we, we prefer Schwab and Interactive uh, to Robinhood. And that, that's what our ratings uh, point out to. Hey, finally, Craig, not to make too much of it, but is there any M&A optionality from a legacy financial firm that might take a look at this and figure, well, we're not imagining it enough. Let's take let's take a look at them as, as a purchase. Yeah, so I think that depends on a bunch of factors. But, you know, in the last couple of years, you saw Schwab buy Ameritrade. Um, you just saw Morgan Stanley buy E-Trade. And so the industry's just consolidated some bit. Uh, some bit. And, and there is advantages to having a big bank that has a wealth manager um, having a digital broker attached to it. Um, you know, one example is you can prevent leakage um, from some of your wealthier clients' kids uh, to competitors. And so there's some advantage there. So there are big banks out there that have wealth managers that could maybe leverage uh, Robinhood um, for the, the online kind of low cost, younger client base. Um, but, you know, that remains to be seen. I think as long as Robinhood is growing, um, they're going to probably want to stay independent. All right. Craig, appreciate it very much. Uh, great call. I hope you have a good holiday. Uh, Craig Siegenthaler, B of A.
Take care. Still to come, a couple of billionaires are all riled up. Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk throwing some cold water on Silicon Valley's hottest investments. That story's after a quick break. One more thing. Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey back in the spotlight, really still in the spotlight. These two sort of converging, two founder CEOs, each associated with two major companies, and both like to mix it up on Twitter. First, Musk announcing he's done with his Tesla share sales. And in an interview with satire website The Babylon Bee, expecting, expressing skepticism about Web3 and the metaverse. I don't see someone strapping a friggin' t- you know, screen to their face all day. Uh, and not wanting to, to ever leave. I, it seems no way. I currently am unable to see a compelling metaverse situation um, or Web3 sounds like more marketing than reality. I don't get it. But it's a sad satire website. Is he serious? He seems serious to me. I don't know. The interview coming as Tesla faces new scrutiny. This is serious. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration saying that Tesla's, quote, passenger play gaming feature may, quote, distract the driver and increase the risk of a crash. So we'll see what happens with that. The stock spiking this morning, Tesla, that is, up 7%. And then there's Jack Dorsey, who's also been very vocal on his criticism of Web3 VCs and the metaverse as a concept. Kate Rooney has been sifting through the tweets, talking to sources, and has the latest for us. Hey, John, yeah, now that Jack is not Twitter CEO, he's acting a lot more like your average Twitter user and a pretty angry one at that. Since you guys mentioned this yesterday, the Dorsey trolling about Web3 has continued. Dorsey is really pointing out a contradiction and a sort of irony here that among venture capital investors, they're really funding what are supposed to be these user-owned decentralized projects, meaning that there's no middleman. But by getting in early, VCs often have an outsized number of tokens or equity and therefore control. Some would argue that makes it centralized in the hands of a lot of these private investors. And he really dunks on Andreessen Horowitz here in particular. One of the biggest players in this space, they've poured more than $3 billion into names like OpenSea and Dapper Labs. Dorsey and others are skeptical that blockchain, in some cases, might be a solution looking for a problem. Elon Musk jokes about it here, talks about Web3. He says he hasn't seen it yet. But these things, of course, are not built overnight. And VCs are the ones taking the risk here to help bootstrap these networks. So why shouldn't they be rewarded for taking some of that financial risk? In this Web3 model, though, others have argued you don't need VCs. Projects could essentially rely on crowdfunding through tokens. Instead, we will see, though, if regulators feel confident about that. There were a lot of enforcement actions around the ICO boom a few years ago. Dorsey is what's known as a Bitcoin maximalist. People I've been talking to say he's not anti-Web3 or decentralization by any means. He's just more focused on the monetary revolution versus any of these other use cases. And in case there was any doubt, guys, check out this response to Cardi B. Bitcoin, he says, will replace the dollar at some point. Back to you. (laughs) Well, we'll see about that. And Julia, uh, I mean, I wonder, open source was also kind of decentralized software in a way, but companies still figured out ways to make money off it. 
They did indeed. And I have to wonder, Carl, whether you think this is all just a bunch of backlash against the Silicon Valley, you know, VCs who control so much money that's going into the tech giants, not just, you know, sort of creating the tech giants of tomorrow. It's not just about what the decentralized platforms are and them controlling too much of it. Just backlash, Carl? I mean, I, I, I think I think it's interesting that we're seeing sort of this intramural uh, fighting while regulators and the rest of us, John, just sort of watch them duke it out. I guess that's going to help us Im improve on price discovery. It is nice, to, I mean, in a way, to have a disparity of opinion. Well, um, if, if market turbulence continues in 22, we're going to look at these squabbles, uh, you know, perhaps fondly, Carl. Uh, remember when? Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, guys, there's going to be a host of data tomorrow as we finish up the last session of the week. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.